Sometimes you're better off dead. There's a gun in your hand and it's pointing to your head. You think you're mad. Too unstable. Kicking down doors and knocking down tables in a restaurant. In a West End girl. Call the police. Why do I keep saying West End girl? Running down underground in a dive bar in a West End town. In a West End town in a dead end world. (laughs) East End boys and West End girls. Have you quite finished? Yeah. Do you not want to? Do you want me to cut that off and make it the pre-credit sequence? Maybe. Well, how far in was it? I don't know. 20 minutes. My, okay. my singing was magnificent. It was absolutely stunning. The cold really adds to your, uh, <laughs> yeah. your nasal delivery. It does, yeah. Very stipe. It sounded pretty perfect in my head. Yeah, yeah, in your head. <laughs> Very possible. Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. Art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. <laughs> well done. Yeah. <laughs> I keep trying to throw you off every week. Do you? By saying it slightly differently. Uh, it uh, worked, though, does no, it? No. I'm always on point. There is no nothing. My, my head is head is head is head is head in the game. Is it? Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. You've not got funny hair. I'm wrong. Well, you have. <laughs> but not like that guy had. Different funny hair. He had a very big, like, Richard Ayoade hair, didn't he? No, he was the other guy. Was he? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm mixing them up. That was Corbin Blur. Oh, right, and I'm mixing you up with Zac Efron. Yeah. It's very sad that we know who these people are, I think. Uh, we have a young sister or daughter. So That's I true. Think so it's, it's, it's acceptable it is. that we know all the songs from High School Musical. Yeah. One, two, and three. And we're all in this together. <laughs> we really <laughs> So should we get our head in the game? We should. Alright, should we look at an email? Yes. Or two? Or three? Or four? We'll see how the wind takes us, should we? Mike Bailey's email then. Nothing but the 90s part three. I'm pretty sure that was the title of his one last week. Could be. I think he's mixed up the numbers. <laughs> but I don't know and I can't be bothered going back to check. So, Hello Leyland, hello Michael. So you all devoted an episode to Vertigo. Shocking, shocking I say. Shocking in that not-at-all kind of way, which rhymes with say, and thus I am suddenly a poet. I wanted to write in joking that I have had bouts of vertigo. Awful thing, too. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, even though I was lying down. The room was spinning. The doctor hooked me up with some medicine, and it doesn't happen all that often, but you probably don't care about that. (laughs) I don't know, do I? Anyway, three excellent choices. I was expecting a preacher comic of some sort to be covered during this series, and it sounds like you guys chose a good one. I've always liked Cassidy, and now I need to read that special and see the faux Anne Rice vampire guy for myself. Preacher has not reached Batman levels on your show, but you have spent a good deal of time talking about the series. Apparently y'all are a bit put out that you can't use more colourful language when talking about the series. If only you'd guessed it on a show, and were able to use that language. Maybe that would make you feel better, and you would have felt like mentioning it. If you had appeared on this hypothetical show to talk about Preacher, maybe even until the end of the world. Maybe it's episode 166 of a show called Views from the Long Box. Just a thought. 
Sorry, Mike. Didn't we both appear on that? We did, yeah. Yeah. I think we may, I think we may should have mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> we do apologise. And we've mentioned it now to... to we have. We've, we've redressed the balance yeah. by mentioning it, yeah. Sandman, Mike continues, I've rather enjoyed the issues of Sandman that I've read. It was a very well-written series that wasn't, as you pointed out, pretentious. It had pretensions, but I never thought it got lost in them like other series could and did. I discovered it in a rather peculiar way. I have three older sisters, and Jane, the one closest to me in age, was the big reader of the family. I mean, we had a rather large library of books, but Jane was the one that read the most out of the four of us kids. I was a late bloomer when it came to reading, and when I really got into comics, Jane treated it with more than a little disdain. Maybe she didn't like the fact that she had to watch all those superhero shows I like to watch never once, considering all those little house on the prairie I had to watch because of her and my other sisters. Anyway, she always looked down on my love of comics if they weren't real literature. During the summer of 1990, I spent several weeks away from home travelling the country with my grandparents. When I came back, I found that Jane had started reading this comic called Sandman. Now, with the advantage of hindsight, I now view this as an example of what Andy was talking about as far as Sandman attracting a new non-comic book reading audience, which is a good thing. But when I was 14, I was like, what the hell, man? You give me 16 stages of for reading comics, now you're reading them? Betrayal! But I digress. I read the three or four issues you picked up and liked them quite a bit. It was odd at the age of 14 reading about serial killers who pleasure themselves until they can't <laughs> pleasure themselves anymore and men having sex with muses, but that issue with the cats was always one of my favourites. <laughs> I recognised that this was an excellent comic even though I didn't collect it. At some point I will pick up the collected editions now I have moved past my bitterness of being treated like a leper at the family reunion every time I ran into a Vertigo reader in the 90s. Andy hit the nail on the head. It wasn't the material, but a certain percentage of the reading audience that felt they were better than everyone else because they read Vertigo, and I read those silly superhero books. The last story you covered sounded awesome. As Andy knows, my humour can run as black as coal, and now I need to track that down in the cheapy bins. Fun episode, I must admit that I'm looking forward to the image stuff y'all are covering next week. Maybe it's because I'm in the midst of doing research for my own series on image for views next year. Maybe it's because I want to hear you both review the first issue of Youngblood. Maybe it's all those reasons and more. Have fun until FX or Showtime finally greenlights TC and the Chicken, <laughs> the series. Make mine Hey Kids comics. Mikey, Mikey. I think TC and the Chicken is a little too blue for FX. What do you think? Maybe, maybe a French market. You, you think? <laughs> so you don't think it could air on stars or something like that? Maybe. Something that has a very broad mind when it comes to what they can show on television. Well, maybe in the, the darker pits of it. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Thank you, Michael, for your email. We do apologise for not mentioning uh, the episode of Views that we were yeah. on. Luke Giaconetti's emailed in with chromium die-cut gatefold embossed polybagged and more. Well, I hope he's not. Imagine doing all that to one person. That would be awful. My foil-enhanced friends, the nostalgia trip continues for this 90s fan as once more we have three 90s superhero comics on tap where I specifically remember each one of them being released and even read two of them. Web of Spider-Man 100 and Spectacular Spider-Man 200 came out in the same month, hence the same type of gimmick cover used on both books. I picked both of them up for a dollar apiece a few months back and you don't get much more different than these comics. One is a thoughtful, emotive capstone on the legacy of Spider-Man's battles with one of his greatest foes and the other has spider armour. <laughs> I can jive with most 90s comics, but Web 100 was just plain nonsensical. And to add insult to injury, I'm pretty sure that the plot lines introduced here were never even addressed. It was clear that Terry Cavanaugh was using this merely to launch his Nightwatch character, who would get his own book a year later. 
A better choice if you wanted an oversized Marvel boot with a round anniversary number and a shiny cover where the hero changes his look would have been Iron Man 300. Featuring a fully foil cover, it served as the end of the Tony's near paralysis storyline and the debut of the modular armour, which is very fondly remembered by Iron fans and stuck around for a few years. It was also the armour adapted for the Iron Man cartoon series and toy line about the same time. The story itself is also quite good, with Len Kaminsky having Tony overcome the physical limitations which had been driving the book for the previous year or two, create the game-changing armour and battle against Ultimo with the Iron Legion, Tony's friends and allies all wearing IM armour. Check it out if you can find a copy. I was on the front line for Electric Blue Superman, having started buying the super boots after Reign of the Superman. I for one dig the blue costume. I agree that it's minimalist and clean and well-designed superhero costume. And I agree with you. I remember the story being pretty cool and the mysteries of Superman's powers and what those powers meant being pretty compelling. Much like all of this era of Superman, which was consistently good week in and week out for the most part. I had to part with all of my Superman comics many years ago, though I have to admit I agonised over dropping them. Now, as far as Sue Richards' ridiculous costume, even at the time, I thought it was insane and stupid, and I was not the only one. I'm pretty sure even Wizard, that bastion of comics journalistic integrity, thought the costume was silly. Beyond the costume idiocy, this era of the Fantastic Four is an odd duck. I'm tempted when I see them, and I see a lot of these in the dollar bins, but I've yet to pull the trigger because so much of it looks ridiculous. This issue is no exception, but if I can find them for less than a book, I might give them a shot after hearing you guys talk about it. I think the eventual explanation for Sue's attitude and costume was that her repressed malice persona was pushing itself to the forefront of her mind and bleeding through into her regular personality. Not sure if that was the intention at the time or a retcon. Nice use of the fantastic cast music as well. Can't wait for Andy and Stephen to cover this issue in a decade or so. As far as Doctor Doom and Thanos, the winner would depend on the writer. John Byrne, Doom wins. Jim Sterling, Thanos wins. Simple as that. Great or extreme episode. Keep it up. Well, thank you, Luke. What if it was a co-written issue? Oh, well, it all depends on whose book it is. I always think that's the rule of thumb, isn't it? If Superman fights the Hulk... Yeah. And it's Superman's book, Superman's going to win. If it's the Hulk's book, Hulk's going to win. If it's Marvel vs. DC, Superman will win. Yeah. <laughs> Which is fair enough. Or they, they don't want to fall out with the other, so neither of them win. Yes, so neither win. There were no lose- winners because they didn't want to make the losers no, feel bad. That's that's the way it works now, yeah. I'm afraid. Sean Engel has emailed it. My lovely compatriot from Listen to the Prophets. Nothing but the 90s. Very simple in his headline, though, mm-hmm. I thought. Dear Blood Andy and Shadow Michael, I applaud you on tackling one of the most maligned decades in comics and covering such a wide variety of books that were coming out then. Of course, I have to comment on a couple of things that you hit upon during the course of the show. First, Green Lantern, obviously, was one of my favourite books from this era, and you hit upon why in the coverage of issue 51. The stories they were telling at the time not only had great action beats, but also allowed to show the characters' personal lives. Kyle had an entire supporting cast that grew around him as he progressed as a character, plus he was able to develop realistic relationships with different women after the death of Alex, including Donna Troy, Wonder Girl, and Jenny Lynn Hayden, Jade that never felt forced. It was the stories that dealt with Kyle rather than Green Lantern that helped make the era such a pleasure. I understand how nowadays comics need to be always on and have the heroes constantly facing greater and greater threats, but I miss the days when you could make a story about Kyle talking about his relationship with Donna or Clark and Lois going on a date. All work and no play makes Kyle a dull boy. I also have to thank you for introducing me to Preacher in one of your earlier shows. I wasn't sure what I'd think about the series, so I found alternate means of reading the comics. I was so impressed with the story, even though the weaker parts near the end, that I've been picking up the trades, because if I enjoy a book, I want to make sure the creators make some money off that. I haven't read the ancillary stuff yet, but I plan on getting to it soon. A bit's near the end. 
Yeah, it, it does run out of steam a little bit in the last arc, I in think. The you know, when he's in. Salvation. Yeah. When, yeah, when he's in Salvation. The end of that. But the last arc itself is very good. It never fails to make me choke up, it does. Does it not? No. Oh, that's quite sweet. <laughs> I've yet to listen to the Image episodes, but feel you will be as reasoned and fur with them as you have been with all the other books. And I wouldn't be surprised if one of them ends up on the floor next to Web of Spider-Man 100. For some reason, I think I have that book as well, simply for the ridiculous cover, and now I know I don't ever have to read it. So thank you, I guess. Have to go. Thanks for the many hours of entertainment you provide for me on those long Thursday nights at work. But you're very welcome, Sean, and thank you for the kind words. Were we even tempered with regards to the Image books, or do you think we were just a little bit... This is crap! I think we were very fur to all the image titles. Dear. Alright, I'll, I'll accept that. Professor Allen has emailed in. Leyland and Leyland! Leyland and Leyland! <laughs> Isn't that Marlo Muppets? Oh, no, is that my, my little corner? Alright, well, what's Marlow and. Marlow and. We're Marley and that's Marley. the one in Muppet Ooh. Christmas Carol. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one I was thinking of. Right, okay. Why I went down the Brony route. <laughs> is a secret that I will keep to myself. I loved the most recent Hey Kids episode with the image book, says Professor Allen. Despite working my way out of comics during this era, something about Spawn worked for me, and I ended up buying the first 50 issues and mostly liking them. It wasn't the hype that brought me in or the speculation, any of that. It was the premise of the story. I'm a sucker for stories that have a spiritual or religious backbone, and this one had angels, Satan, hell, all of those concepts and images that just work for me. Yes, at times it was over-the-top, overblown and melodramatic, but there were some good stories and interesting characters in there as well. Thanks for reminding me to not be ashamed of liking this, Professor Allen. Well, you're very welcome, but if you liked it, you don't, shouldn't be ashamed of it. I don't think we do guilty pleasures, do we? No, they're, they're all pleasures. Everything's just a pleasure, yes. All right, we'll squeeze one more in. E-bar gum and a flat cap is the heading. It's from Katie Williams. Hello, Katie. Oh, Katie was just on Facebook. She's met somebody from Supernatural. Okay. Um, the trickster guy. The trickster god. Oh, right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, the weekly world news guy. Yeah, him. so that was crack here. Hello, sirs Leyland and Leyland. That's almost Marley and Marley again. Isn't Ooh. <laughs> First up, I really love the Notebook 90s season. <laughs> and Katie's in Bolton, so she will have actually pronounced that proper. I can't comment on any of the comics you covered as I haven't read them. However, I did grow up watching Batman, Spider-Man and the X-Men animated series and still have the box sets of Batman on DVD. No shame. Oh, I still have them, Katie. Don't I? I have all my Batman the animated series box sets. It was great hearing more about comics during the era I grew up in, you know, the ones I should have been reading. My to-read list is growing, especially X-Men. Gambit and Rogue were always my favourites in the series. It'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on the animated series versus the comics. Now I have a confession. I'm one of those terrible people who started getting into Marvel and DC comics-wise because of the movies. Ducks behind couch. I also started reading and fell utterly in love with Hellboy because I love the movie. In my defence, I was reading comics, graphic novels, etc. before, but somehow I don't see Johnny the Homicidal Maniac becoming a big Hollywood success. <laughs> I was never one of those cool kids, but the X-Men and Batman and Marvel movies reminded me how much I enjoyed comic book TV shows. And between that and some great podcasts, it finally gave me the push to start buying things in the big two rather than sticking to the previously safe one-off or short series graphic novels such as Watchmen or Hellboy. The Marvel movies also gave me some decent jumping off points. I love the character of Black Widow, so I started digging into some of her comic timeline, same for Loki, and the fact he isn't completely different to the god from Norse mythology I loved as a kid didn't hurt. 
Maybe I'm an old duck in that I understand comic universes and movie universes' continuity can be totally different. Thanks, Hellboy. And that the movies may be set now, but that doesn't mean the comic storyline they're based on is current. What I'm trying to say is movies help me get into comics properly. It's not always a bad thing. See, I don't think it is. Maybe when I said what I said, I didn't quite clearly convey what I meant. All right. Did you... I See, my personal thinking as this is you didn't mean the people that watch the movies and go, ooh, this is cool, and actually get into the comics. What I kind of meant was, if you like the movie, that's great. We all like movies. Movies are cool. That's true. But you can then be a fan of the movie. I don't care if it's based on a comic, but you like the movie. <laughs> but it's when you then start claiming that because of the movie you know loads of stuff about the characters involved and the comics involved. And you claim to be a big fan when in fact you've just got... you've just seen the movie. That kind of annoys me a bit. Well, like when you say you're a big Batman fan but you've only seen the Nolan trilogy. Right. You've not even seen a Batman movie. I still like Batman Begins. That's all I'm going to say. Batman Begins is great. Well, no, see, I took it. Well, I live with you, so I know what you mean. But I took it as you're not on board with the current trendiness of everyone loving superheroes who've never picked up a comic and dissed on you for reading comics. You're not actually against people who've seen the films and gone out and gone, oh, I'll read the comics and got into the comics. Yeah, because that's a different thing. You've got into the comics and then have a knowledge. And though they can go around claiming to be a fan of the college cause, comics, because they are. Mm. It, my problem is when they just say they've seen a movie and thus know everything about it. Like, oh, I've seen Watchmen. So I know everything about Watchmen. Which one of my the the my all time favorite comments is something Scott Gardner said. Or oh, was it Michael Bailey? One of them. Um, Watchmen is the greatest comic book series of all time. Well, what they actually mean is the uh, the Watchmen is the only comic book series I've read. <laughs> Uh, I don't know which one of those that was, but it does sound like them. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Fair enough. Okay. So you and Katie are, are friends again. We were always friends, Katie. Uh, that's fair enough. After all that, continues Katie, as I'm just about to start working through the long Halloween and October is on the way, planning on doing a themed episode. Katie back in hiding from enraged comics fans. Well, Michael's wanted to do the long Halloween every year, haven't you? In real time. Yeah, Michael's wanted to do an issue a month. In the month that they actually take place. Yeah. Because that could be perfectly doable, because it's a Jeff Lobb comic, so it wouldn't take us more than five minutes to read. Probably not. Just a little back bit on yeah. the end of shows. But see, it's probably not going to happen now. No. Uh, but that was, he did have that idea of doing the long Halloween. And had we been more competent, we would have actually done a Halloween episode. Yeah. But it, it's not happening this year, I don't think, because we're in the middle of being in the 80s. We are. Flows are still in, dude. You know, if I could still get it doing, we we uh, write it, record it, and edit it quick, slide it on the end. In a week? I don't think that's going to happen. I could do it. You reckon? Yeah. Yeah, it's not like you do anything else, is it? You work shy far. Oh, yeah. Anyway, we'll knock it on the head, though, with the email section of the show. So we'll plug a show. It'll be a show. I'm pretty sure of that. <laughs> and uh, we will be back with more from the decade of whatever the decade was. Madonna. The, the decade that taste forgot. No, that's the 70s. No, it was the 80s, I'm sure. Was it? Yeah. Uh, shoulder pads. Yeah. That's it. Flock of Seagulls. Big culture Club. Yeah. I should put a Culture Club pet song at the end boys. of a... Uh, well, I don't mind the Pet Shop Boys. I should put a Culture Club song at the end of a show. Man, that is a guilty fashion. pleasure, isn't it? The Pet Shop Boys. It's not guilty. <laughs> West End Boys are dead and gone. West End Boys and Death Dead and Girls or something. East End Boys are dead and... That's the one. East you know it better than I do. I do, yeah. <laughs> 
It's a sin, dude. <laughs> we'll be back in a minute. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Gotcha, Mom! Or maybe... Dragon Flame! How about... Tatsuo! Or... In the year 1999, an abandoned alien battle fortress crash-landed on the planet Earth. Our most brilliant scientists and engineers spent the next 10 years reconstructing the damaged ship and studying its highly advanced space technology called Robotech. Do you remember... Our Star Blazers! Or this... The year is after Colony 195. As the world constantly changes in the chaotic era, there are two mobile suits that could turn humans into the ultimate weapon. The Wing Zero and the Epion. Or maybe even this. After the desire for blood pools all, the only hope left is the one they call D. Or this. Gene, grappler ships dead ahead! It wouldn't be fun otherwise. Let's do it! Or... If Cardus is allowed to be reborn, she'll destroy Marmo as well as Lodos. Or have you seen the latest episode of... And just like that, everything changed. At that terrible moment, in our hearts, we knew... Home was a pen. Humanity, cattle. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out Anime Freaks, hosted by Dr. Bill Robinson and me, Gene Hendricks. Anime Freaks is a monthly podcast covering all things anime. It is available at 2TrueFreaks.com and on iTunes under 2TrueFreaks Presents Anime Freaks. Marvel in 1985 was still strong. The phenomenal success of the 12-issue limited series Marvel Superior Secret Wars led to the distinctly less enjoyable sequel, Secret Wars 2. What do they come up with these names? What made this particularly notable, if not memorable, was unlike the previous series, which was mostly self-contained in its own series, Secret Wars 2 crossed over into pretty much every mainstream Marvel title. And, for the first time, the nine-issue series didn't stand on its own. Some of the tie-in issues were pretty important to the main event. The other remarkable thing about Marvel in 1985 was the amount of mass-media tie-ins the company published. In addition to comic book adaptations of movies such as Conan the Destroyer, 2010, Bukadu Banzai, Sheena, Dune and a few others, there was also an increased number of licensed titles to add to the already-running G.I. Joe, Conan, Rom, Indiana Jones and Star Wars, which celebrated 100 issues in the middle of the year. Other licensed titles then included the debut of the Transformers, the Muppet Babies, Thundercats, Doctor Who, Fraggle Rock and more. The seeds we saw planted last week bore fruit and there was an increased emphasis on high-end expensive comics with ElfQuest and Dreadstar and more bookshelf-sized graphic novels. There was more limited series, normally focusing on different members of the X-Men, and the death knell of the team-up title sounded almost for the last time with the cancellation of Marvel Team-Up, leaving DC Comics Presents as the only representative of its kind. For now... A glance at Mike's Amazing World makes it look like Marvel was publishing far more comics than ever in this year.
DC in 1985 were a company in transition. In January, DC began publishing Crisis on Infinite Earths, an epic 12-part series that would change the face of the DC Universe, arguably forever. Jeanette Kahn had been convinced by former fans turned pro Marv Wolfman and Len Wein that the multiverse that made up the DC Universe was unwieldy and confusing, an opinion I didn't agree with, and that a house clearing was called for. Worlds will live and worlds will die. And the DC Universe will never be the same again, ran the ads for the series. And for once, the hyperbole was accurate. Following the conclusion of the series, Superman, The Flash, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern and the Justice League would be irrevocably altered. Whilst people still argue if Crisis ultimately did more damage than good, or even if it was necessary at all, at the time it was a much-needed shot in the arm. Batman and Detective Comics were mostly coasting, not really knowing what the ultimate outcome of the crisis would be for the character. There were still good reads, but Batman and the Outsiders was more consistently enjoyable, and the creative team, Mike W. Barr and Alan Davis, would be rewarded later. DC also had high-end graphic novels, adaptations of respected science fiction stories, and they too had expensive reprints, in this case of the Neil Adams' Dead Man and Englehart Rogers' Batman. Licensed comics included V, based on the popular sci-fi TV series of the time, and Star Trek, which this year included Annual Number 1, one of my favourite Star Trek EU stories ever concerning Captain Kirk's first mission as Captain of the Enterprise. For Superman, though, 1985 was a relatively low point. Action Comics was completely directionless, feeling like it was just an opportunity to clear out the inventory, with only the ambush bug issues being even remotely memorable. Superman was equally problematic, with it feeling very much like editor Julius Schwartz was simply counting down the time to his retirement, with only a Lex Luthor story by Curry Bates proving there was life in the old dog yet. DC Comics Presents had two of the best stories of the year, with Alan Moore's The Jungle Line in issue 85, and Annual Number 4, a great team-up with Superwoman. Superman Annual Number 11, also by Moore, was a high point. This week's pick, therefore, was Superman issue 414, cover dated December 1985, and has a cover by Eduardo Barreto, with Superman screaming that, No! No! I can't take it anymore! He's a ghostly background image seen before him Supergirl dying, and various other Supermans being beaten. It's a crisis crossover, which was also a celebration of DC's 50th. It's good. No more, no less. It's it's alright, isn't it? Yeah. It's a good cover. Mm -hmm. Don't really have much else to say. I don't really know what's going on. Superman's holding dead Supergirl. So that ties it into crisis. So that ties it into crisis, and somebody's beating him up, and somebody's crucifying him. I presume they're the Superman Revenge Squad. Yeah, and they haven't yeah. tied up later on, don't they? Yeah. It's alright though, isn't it? Yeah. Does the job. Does what it sets out to do. Revenge is Life, Death to Superman was by Elliot S. Maggin, Kurt Swan and Al Williamson. Superman is still mourning the loss of Supergirl, killed in the crisis. But whilst he is bopping around multiple Earths on our Earth, the Superman Revenge Squad have invaded the Fortress of Solitude. They leave with the knowledge they sought, but a tachyon beam transmit across space to New Krypton, actually the denizens of the newly embiggened bottle city of Kandor. As Superboy is snatched into a cosmic vortex, the Revenge Squad grabs Superman thanks to a beam of red sun energy and drag him across the galaxy to New Krypton. Seeing Superman so defeated, the New Kryptonians unleash their armies, but the Revenge's ability to teleport renders their weapons moot. Superman watches helplessly removed of his power and the Revengers land, summoning the populace thanks to a Kryptonian mind control. They swarm upon the defeated Man of Steel who breaks down, having lost so much of late. 
One person not affected by the Kryptonian mind ray was Sylvia, the human wife of Superman's friend Van Z, who has brought with her a Phantom Zone ray projector, which Superman uses to dispatch the Revengers back to the Phantom Zone. Remember that beam from earlier? Well, apparently Superman's computer deduced what the Revengers were up to and warned Sylvia. That was convenient, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. All is well, yet sometime later, Superman must take Supergirl's body to her parents, both on New Krypton, and the three of them will grieve her loss. Oh, it's a bit of a downbeat ending, that one. Considering the uh, the story itself, I liked the Revenge Squad breaking into Krypton, into Krypton, into the Fortress of Solitude. But that guy who talked and <laughs> then said exactly the same thing again, but like Yoda. Yeah, he was very annoying. He was, wasn't he? I wasn't really um, a big fan of that. Duh, here's a good example. I have it with me. In the file, do I have it? Ah, it says the first thing we want to find is the supercomputer. Find the computer, does it say? Shut up! Yeah. Is what the reader said. I like on the first page. What's Superman doing there? Yawning. Yeah. That's what it looks like. Yeah. Isn't it? Is, is he supposed to be waving his fists in an I think angry, he is. angry moment? But yeah, yeah, it does look like he's, uh, he's having a good old stretch. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's following on from the issue we covered where he's just tired all the time. It could be. Or straight on from that, why not? Um, It's really lucky for Superman that New Krypton is on a direct straight line in space from the fortress. Yeah. Isn't it? Because it doesn't move or bob or weave or anything. It's just a straight line. (laughs) Space is pretty big. The odds that it would be in a straight line are probably... Oh, I don't know. Never tell me the odds. (laughs) But, you know... I mean, it's a comic. I can live with it. I just thought I was fortunate. Maybe it curves, but really, really faintly. Right. Maybe it's a homing thing, and we just can't see it to the naked eye. Yeah. That works, doesn't it? Or maybe it's just to make the art easier to follow. Yeah, that's true. I love that in in the houses on New Krypton, apparently all the kids come down fireman's poles. Yeah. How do you get upstairs, then? You climb up. Do you? Yeah. It's good exercise. (laughs) That kid... Don't look old enough to be sliding down a fireman's pole. No. Where's health and safety on New Krypton? Daddy, it's burning my legs. Please, <laughs> please build some stairs. Shut girl. There's the reason I sleep on the bottom floor. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Do you not think Sylvia looks exactly like Lois? Yeah. Do you think that's an artistic touch or deliberate? Could be artistic. Yeah, it right, just cuts one draws women that look like Lois. Cuts one draws women looking the same. Alright, fair enough. Uh, Clark having a computer in his office on page 9 that can talk for him whilst he's away as Superman's a great idea. Yeah. But, isn't it a bit stupid having it at the office? Where people can hear. Where people just walk in. Yeah. Wouldn't it make more sense to have that at home? Maybe. Well, you know, nobody's going to just wander into his apartment unless they're robbers. But presumably the Fortress of Solitude is smart enough to know if somebody's going to rob Clark Kent's apartment and stop it. Yeah. Because his computer seems to be quite smart in well, that regard. Well, not smart enough to know if someone's going to break into itself. No, no. <laughs> no don't be silly. We've got no plot if that happens. I don't really have much page by page for this one. Do you have anything? No. Really? It's... Essentially, it's a story about Superman being tackled when he's down by people who want nothing but to see him laid low. It wasn't bad. Mm. It was a tad confusing, Sean, of the Crisis on Crisis on Infinite Earth storyline. And Superman breaking down was a nice moment, but having him crawl under his cape 
like a small child seemed a tad much. Yeah. I don't know what I thought about that. I mean, seeing him get beaten up was a bit much as well, wasn't it? I did like how the uh, page layout started changing. They got a little more experimental with the page layouts in the middle. Yeah. I wonder if that was Al Williamson's influence. Don't know. Because he was more of a sci-fi guy. I mean, there's a good bit where Superman grabs hold of one of his captors, the guy who talks backwards and then forwards. You cannot do this, do this, you cannot. And you're like, shut up! Yeah. And I honestly thought that at first what we were going to see there was like Superman just like ripping the back of his neck off. <laughs> or turning him around and ripping his face off with his teeth. Yeah. Because all he really does there is just pull him with his, his collar. Yeah. So that was a bit feeble. I don't know. I'm not advocating a Superman that rips somebody's nose off with his teeth. But that may have been funny. Yeah, it would have been quite the... uh... It would have been quite unexpected (laughs) that Superman did that. And also, does the the thing that releases him just hover there? Because Superman's not holding it when he manages to steal the key off him. Yeah. It just hovers in mid-air while it releases him, doesn't it? Oh, that was a bit woolly as well. Maybe he holds it up with his super breath. Maybe. Well, he doesn't have any superpowers at this point, does he? He's been uh, exposed to bread, yeah. sun, energies or some such. Um, I thought Sylvia would have been a much more proactive character if, thanks to not being brainwashed by the Revengers, because she's human, so she doesn't fall for the Kryptonian brainwashing, she'd use the Phantom Zone projector herself instead of giving it to Superman. Hmm. I think that would have been a more satisfying ending. Ultimately, this was an issue of two halves. There's some interesting ideas here, and it's executed well, although I think your criticism of Spider-Man a couple of um, weeks back, was that episode one of this 80s thing? Maybe. Um, I think that's equally valid when you apply it to this story. I mean, it's a slightly different form. This is steeped in background and mythology rather than subplots and continuity. Yeah. But there's a lot here that I think it is relying on you knowing about. And it's cool. All of the pathology that it, it represents is pretty cool. But it's a story that's showing how cool all this mythology is rather than being a decent story in yeah. and of itself with all of this. Don't you, didn't you think you kind of had to know that the fortress had Kandor in it and Kandor had been enlarged and set off on its own again? And, yeah. Because not, it's not mentioned in here anywhere. No. You've just got to kind of know that. And neither's the crisis, which is supposed to be a... a yeah, it's like, for. Supergirl's dead, Superboy disappears because of the crisis, but yeah. then it's just not mentioned again. The Revenge Squad come in and, and do what they're doing. I mean, as a farewell to all of this, which I suppose this almost is, hmm. if we don't count the Alan Moore thing, it does its job, it does it adequately. I mean, more about Supergirl's death and the impact on her parents, I think, would have been nice. Yeah. But the last page is emotionally effective. Mm. The epilogue in this is my favourite part of the issue. Yeah, I think maybe they should have done more of that. Yeah. Instead of this, quite frankly, rather silly Superman Revenge Squad story. Yeah, yeah. More of Superman coming home and telling her parents that Supergirl's dead and maybe an issue of remembrance. and Yeah. I think that would have been a more interesting read than what we actually got. This The last two pages are the best in the issue. Mm where Superman brings Supergirl's body home and you just hear them screaming and the issue ends. Yeah. And I think it would have been more effective to to explore that. Al Williamson, I thought, brought something new to Kurt Swan's pencils, which made it nice to look at. Um, It's an odd issue to judge. It's both emblematic of the era 
but it still feels quite modern in that it's part of a crossover event and it doesn't actually really stand up on its own with at least a passing knowledge of what's going on in Crisis on Infinite Earths. Mm. I mean, there's a part of me that's reassured that some of my problems with crossovers aren't new. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, I didn't dislike it. I just don't have a lot to say about it. It's one of the times where the random generator that we stole from Steve Lacey because he doesn't do 20 (laughs) minute long box anymore it picked one that I looked at and thought oh this was cool yeah because it's a crisis issue and it ended up not being Mm. I wonder if I thought it was going to be cooler because it was a crisis issue could be see because you said something earlier go on say what you said when you were reading it why does the art still look like 1955 yeah yeah you look at the cover yeah which is by Edward Barretta yeah and there's there's quite a bit of Perez in the Ghost Superman. Mm. Well, it's, it's harkening back to Crisis, isn't it? Yeah, and it's it looks like a comic released during the heyday of Crisis. Like it's released in 1985, which is good because it is. Well, yeah, yeah, you expect that. <laughs> yeah, but you go inside and it looks even with the the inker giving it a different look. It's still you know Ross Andrew, and it still looks like it was released in Kurt Swan. Kurt, Kurt Swan, yeah, yeah. Kurt Swan, and it still looks like it was released back in the 50s. And it's this kind of issue that's so close to Crisis mm. that makes John Byrne and Man of Steel look so new and different. Yeah, so modern and up-to-date. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, I think we said when we did Man of Steel in episode 200, Superman needed that. Yeah. Whether we came down a little bit harder on it than perhaps, or certainly I did, than I have in the past when I read it. This time, it's more a case of me now being far more aware of the history of the character than I was when yeah. that was my Superman. But yeah, he was a smack in the face. Yeah. And it is it is one of the things... I mean, it does... So, as a stupid child, I didn't like Kurt Swan's Superman. I thought he was boring. Yeah. That's why Gil Kane's stuff, and when Jose Luis Garcia Lopez would draw Superman, that's when it hit you that, wow, this guy can be good. Yeah. I mean, as an older man... I can now appreciate Kurt Swan is a really excellent artist, isn't he? Yeah. But you're right, this doesn't look any different to Superman from 55, 65, mm. 75, and arguably needed something. Yeah. In the same way the new 52 Superman needs John Romita Jr. Yeah. It needs a different artist to say this is a new Superman. No. Maybe not John Jr. for you. Yeah. But the principle's the same, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah. It doesn't look like your old Superman. And when you're doing something like this, that's what you needed. Yeah. And yeah, John Byrne was a, a breath of fresh air. It's just at the time. Maybe the early ones we covered at the beginning of the eighties, if that was still Kurt Swan. Mm. He's still, you know, making it look a little bit dated compared to everything else, but for it to be crisis tie-in issue and still look this dated to then have a post-crisis issue that was released a year after this Mm. and be so drastically different well it's interesting I'm looking forward to what you think about Superman next week okay when it's we are post-crisis yeah so I'm interested it was again we're in the situation with the Superman comics that it's picked yeah. I mean, other than the Superman Superboy one, which I loved, because I love that story, you were a kind of lukewarm on. Yeah. We've we've all been of the opinion in all of them, haven't we, that it's not bad. It's an enjoyable comic. I don't feel like I wasted my money buying it, and I'm not going to toss it across the room. Yeah. 
but it's not great, is it? Well, I thought the first one we covered was pretty darn great, but it still wasn't an 80s comic. Hmm. Yeah, I mean... See, the word solid means it's good but not remarkable, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's what this is. It's solid, it's good but not remarkable. The Superman Revenge Squad does feel like a 60s throwback in an issue that I think I wanted to be dealing with the ramifications of the death of Supergirl. Because you don't get that in the crisis, do you? No. You don't get much in the way of mourning. They touch on it, don't they? Yeah, but this could have been an issue about that. Yeah. About what Supergirl's death means to Superman, what it means to her parents. It would have been the best way they could do it. Yeah. How does Superman deal with it? Well, let's tell it in... In his own story. But they didn't. And the actual... The first 20 pages of this feel like, yeah, like a 60s Superman Revenge Squad story. Yeah. And the last two pages are the good stuff, the emotional heart of what the story should have been, and they're just tossed off. It's completely different as well. Yeah. It doesn't even... There's nothing to do with the crisis. The tone is completely different from the crisis. Hmm. I do like that Superman's got um, what looks like the ship from Battle of the Planets, the Phoenix. That's what he flies out in to go and rescue Supergirl's body. Yeah. So it looks like Battle of the Planet. Anyway, yeah, okay. Um, I think we're coming down on a solid, it was alright, oh. Yeah. For that one. Okay, fair enough. Shame, but call them like we see them. The Batman had a curious 1985. Essentially, he just carried on as if nothing were happening, and even if it was, well, it needn't concern him. In a development that would be unheard of today, Batman didn't even get a crisis tie-in issue. There were some great Batman stories in this year, from the excellent Dr. Harvey and Mr. Bullock from Detective 549 to Just As Night Follows Day from Batman 383. The Nocturne Jason Todd story bubbled along nicely, and there was a deserved reprint of The Player on the Other Side in the Best of DC Digest, issue 62. The pick for this year, Batman issue 386, boasts on its cover that the new villain for the 80s, Black Mask, is crazier than the Joker and deadlier than Ra's al Ghul. It has a close-up of both Batman and Black Mask's masks, appropriately, and he wears a fedora as well as something that covers his face. They are surrounded by masks from around the world. It's uh, eye-catching. Yeah. Batman's not actually in his mask, it's just the mask. Yeah. The cowl, I suppose we should say. Which I quite like. I like that the logo is transparent. Yeah. For the things behind it as well. It's good. Yeah. Tom Mandret did it, I think. Yeah, there he signed it for a proper good with floaty heads. It's not floaty heads, though. It's floaty masks. They're not very well laid out as well. They're kind of a jumble. They're representing his psyche. Okay. His fracture and a jumble and a mess. Yeah. And these are the masks that he hides behind. The inks are very heavy as well. Well, Tom Mandrake stuff is. I mean, as we will see as we go into the issue. Yes. Losing Face was written by Doug Mensch with art by Tom Mandrake. On the day of his birth, Roman Sionis was dropped by the Doctor, a harbinger of things to come. As he grew older, her to the Janus cosmetics industry. The Sionis and the Waynes shared the same friends, and Roman and young Bruce Wayne were acquaintances. Whilst on holiday, Roman is attacked in the woods by a beaver, his face scarred and he flees. His scars are repaired, but internally young Roman never feels anything. He has cold, dark eyes and a dark soul. Groomed to take over the company, Roman employs Cersei, a young model, as the face of his company, over the objections of his parents. A suspicious fire claims his parents' life some days later, and Roman takes over as CEO. 
Bold new lines emphasising a different face fail, and Roman orders into production a waterproof makeup range without extensive testing. The makeup causes rashes and facial disfigurement. Cersei leaves and Roman is forced to sell to Wayne Enterprises, after which he will only be the face of the company. Wayne will run it. Roman returns to the crypt his parents are buried in and lifts the casket to reveal the decomposed face of his father looking back at him. Roman's already fragile mind snaps. The next day, Roman disappears with a lot of cash, an automatic pistol, and his failed waterproof makeup line. He fashions himself a mask from the ebony casket of his father's resting place and recruits more men to the False Face Society of Gotham, for masks sublimate one's personality and give free reign to the face we keep hidden. One by one, the board of directors appointed to Janus Cosmetics by Wayne are killed with a carefully placed mask upon their face that is full of the waterproof makeup. This is only the beginning. Black Mask's new target is Bruce Wayne himself. Batman's not in this one a lot, is he? Well, when he is in it, the issue ends. Yes, <laughs> that's pretty much it. Yeah, that's actually how it goes, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Munch links Roman Sionis to Bruce Wayne, establishing that the Waynes and the Sionis worked in similar social circles. Roman was already aloof and a little intense, maybe suffering from single child syndrome. Straight away, Mench is playing with the idea of the different faces we all were, depending on the situation, and he walks just on the right side of the line, never hammering over the head with his subtext. Granted, the name's a little on the nose. Roman comes from the Latin, meaning a citizen of the Empire, in the original case, the Roman Empire, but here the Empire of Janus Cosmetics. Sionis is very similar to Sion, as pointed out in the newspaper headline announcing his birth, which means a lineal descendant, which means that Roman's name translates as Son of the Empire. Janus Cosmetics derives its name from the Roman god of beginnings and transitions, and of course has two faces. Yes. See what he's doing? I do. I liked it, actually. I didn't think it was, you know, smack you over the face with it. I think at the beginning, with all of his mask puns, I was getting a bit tired with them. You think? See, I, I didn't... I didn't Every me. other caption and every other panel just had, um, and he puts his mask on. Uh, the masks his parents wore. Yeah. Almost as much as the masks occasioned by their fleeting presence. Yeah. Alright. See, I was like, I didn't feel that he, he banged us over the head with it, but maybe you're right, maybe you did. And I just enjoyed it so much I wasn't noticing. I did feel as though I was missing something with the Janus thing as well. I knew who Janus was, and I knew that he could see in the future and the past. So what Well, I just interpreted it as he has two faces. Right. So which I was, is the subtext of the story. I was going to say, why is that a makeup thing when you have a watch company called Janus? <laughs> no, well, I... Two faces things and you put the makeup on yeah, yeah okay. and the face that you were for different situations yeah so that's that's what I interpreted I was it. just thinking of it as a time thing I did love that the Sionis family's idea of roughing it is to stay in a huge mansion in the middle of nowhere yeah so that's exactly camping is it no so I did I did quite laugh right at the beginning when the doctor drops him <laughs> I thought oh god all of his problems started because the doctor <laughs> dropped him because the doctor dropped him and they never sued him either no. which was uh, quite a surprise <laughs> The cartoon feature film that the parents take Roman to watch is Remus and Ephraim. 
Remus was the twin brother to Romulus in Roman mythology. Uh, yeah. So there you go. There's another one. One face shared by two different people. Romulus and Remus. Yeah, right? when you're a twin. Circe, the modelling name given to the woman before Roman hires her to be the face of Yannis, is also from Greek mythology and was the goddess of magic who could turn men into animals, which is what she does here. Yeah. Essentially. She weaves her spell on Roman, takes what she wants and leaves him to carry the bag, a true femme fatale. Mm. Batman's already deep into noir very yeah. early into the 80s and I do like how she's about to tell him her real name but he refuses to and just calls her that for the rest yeah, of it yeah he just calls her Cersei for the rest of the story when he meets the raccoon yeah am I the only one who thought he had it coming to him when he's this snotty. very kind of sheltered snotty pompous rich kid who's had you know pandered to him and everything yeah. and he meets his raccoon and he bites him he just goes into total panic overload um, I honestly thought that after this he was going to be facially scarred. Yeah. But he isn't, is he? No, he just gets bit on the hand and because of his upbringing he just... You know, Panics and runs through the trees and that's what scares his face. And he has such a horrible nightmare over it to something that is really quite small. Well, that's the point, isn't he? He's very sheltered. Yeah. He doesn't know what to do in this situation. He's not used to being in the great outdoors. Yeah. Even if for them the great outdoors is a huge mansion. <laughs> he's, he's not used to handling it. Um, Black Mask, when it finally happens three quarters of the way into the issue, names the first henchmen in his gang Thespis and Tupeng, which are the names from the theatre, both of them. Thespis was the first actor, i.e. the first person to adopt the face of another, and Tupeng are the wooden masks used in theatre performances. Yeah. See, all of that stuff I thought was quite good, and mm. quite well done. I didn't think it was... Um, banging you over the head with anything really I thought it was quite clever I thought this was interesting I thought this was a really interesting issue in that the Batman just doesn't appear does he no. until page 21 of a 23 page story and even then he's in a total of five panels six panels sorry if we don't count the panels that are just in punching somebody yeah and that's it for the, the totality of the comic it's a very dark and gruesome story about the faces that we were in polite society versus the faces we were in private. Especially interesting is that this is a far darker, noirish, more horror-infused story, more akin to the late 2000s or today, particularly um, Scott Snyder's thing, Black Mirror. Yeah. That's very close to this in tone. Showing Doug Mensch was well ahead of his time. Whilst Batman rarely appears when he does... He's a shadowy figure, taciturn and no-nonsense, again, more in keeping with the more contemporary books than other DC comics of this era. All of this is to say this held up remarkably well and easily would fit in what DC are publishing today. Mm. Upon completion of the issue, I wanted to dig out the next chapter, yeah. which is always a sign of a good story. Tom Mandrake's art is wonderfully moody. Very, very dark, isn't it? Yeah. Do you think it was too dark? No. No. I was just wondering because of the, the printing technology of the time, it's it's a little bit muddy sometimes. It does get very black, vertigo levels of scratchiness in places. Yeah, as well. but I think it, it helped the story. I'll yeah. be honest with you, I thought it was uh, very entertaining. We've not really covered too many adverts in this because there's, there's not really been a lot of them. But the meanwhile column is all about... Um, the trip to England that led to Alan Moore and Steve Moore and Brian Bolland and Kev O'Neill and Dave Gibbons and Neil Gaiman and all of that lot. 
going to work for DC, and Supergirl had just come out on video, just in time for her to die. Okay. Good, yeah. good. Ma- the, the marketing synergy that we have today yeah, did yeah. not exist in 1985. <laughs> also, the Superpowers action figures have come out. I had that Superman, didn't I? Mm. Or did you have that Superman? I don't know. Or don't did you have my one of them? I don't think I had it because I don't remember him having bendy knees. Right, I had Superman and Batman. I'm pretty sure I did. don't think I ever had any of the others. I might have in the Flash. The Flash looked quite cool. In fact, they all look like pretty cool figures, them, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. I know I had Superman because my cape ripped. Which was the bane of many a Superman figure with a cloth cape, wasn't it? Yeah. That the cape would rip. What do you think of that one? Uh, I enjoyed the story, just didn't like the villain. Do you not like Black Mask? The best supervillain, or yeah. the best villain, if you're following them from their point of view, then you have to see things from their perspective. Or to and have you just kept thinking he's a snotty, yeah. spoiled Everything child. Everything that happened to me, I'd come into him. Right. <laughs> So, okay, yeah. he had it coming. He did. It's like oh, we've not done enough testing. Ah, run it anyway. It's like oh yeah, all no, of that he did. No, we're not letting you marry her. Oh, I'll kill you in your sleep. Yeah, there's there's an awful lot of they have to lose the parents, isn't there? Yeah, and then there's, he decides to kill everyone who works for Wayne just because they bought him out because he was going bankrupt because of his own stupid decisions. Yeah, and you, Bruce has only done it because his dad was friends with his dad. Yeah, I don't feel any sympathy towards him. Well, maybe you're not supposed to if he's Black Mask. He's obviously going to be a, yeah. an, a bad egg. Has there ever been a quintessential Black Mask story? I don't know. Because he's been around an awful lot. And he's, he's, he went quite big recently as well. Is he back recently? With the... Uh, who's the artist who did Detective when it restarted New 52? Finch? Yes. Was it? David Finch? No. Or did he do Dark Knight? He did Dark Knight. I don't remember who did Detective Comic. Um, yeah, I don't remember who did Detective. He did a lot of Grant Morrison stuff, R.I.P. Oh, I know what you mean. Oh, I don't know his name. Yeah. It'll come back to us when we're not thinking about it. It will. Won't it? So Black Mask came back in those stories? Yeah, he came back in them, and he was heavily in the Arkham Morrison's game. Right. So he didn't make quite a big comeback. Oh, so he is, yeah. He yeah. is in that game. But that fizzled out. Yeah. Alright, well, maybe Doug Mench made some decent money out of it. Yeah. Like Jerry Conway made a decent wedge out of Killer Croc. Hmm. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? It was alright, yeah, I, 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 you know, it was more than alright. I thoroughly enjoyed reading that. That is yeah. for a Batman. So did I, I just didn't get behind Black Mask. Right, okay. Best place be behind him, really. <laughs> probably, yeah. Best of that mask, you probably can't see you. There's no <laughs> peripheral vision. <laughs> so. The Amazing Spider-Man had a pretty decent, albeit turbulent, 1985. Marvel Team-Up came to an end to be replaced by another in-continuity regular monthly comic called Web of Spider-Man. Arguably, this was a title too far, really being relevant or even interesting. Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man, quite a poor follow-up to Bill Mantlo's run when Al Milgram took over as writer and artist. This was followed by a number of tedious fill-ins, but shortly thereafter, Peter David kicked off the memorable death of Gene DeWolf arc. For the main title, though, Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends had taken over from Roger Stern and John Romita Jr. and developed a pretty good tone, following up Secret Wars by introducing the black costume. The biggest development was the revelation that Mary Jane had always known he was Spider-Man, and we were finally given her backstory. 85 began with a massive Hobgoblin story and we were introduced to the Fox and there were far too many Secret Wars 2 crossovers. Behind the scenes, however, it was not plain sailing. Tom DeFalco has said that new editor Jim Owsley played office politics and, for whatever reason, wanted him and friends off the book. To that end, he regularly bumped their stories, claiming lateness, an accusation DeFalco and friends refute for fill-in stories. With the momentum being lost, Falco and friends would grow more frustrated and things would come to a head over the Hobgoblin's real identity a few years down the line. 
Amazing Spider-Man issue 263, cover dated April 1985, has a cover by Ron Friends and Joe Rubenstein. Heads up, Spidey, there's a new webhead in town, runs the cover, which is a rather portly figure wearing an ill-fitting Spider-Man outfit, spectacles, and running across town with what looks like Dr. Octopus's arms on. The crowd watches Spidey swings in wearing the black costume. The spectacular Spider Kid was written by Tom DeFalco with art by Ron Friends and Joe Rubenstein. Evildoers beware, there's a new scourge of the underworld in town. The spectacular Spider Kid. Clad in a baggy Spider-Man costume and walking on poorly constructed mechanical legs, our portly hero foils a mugging by dumb luck. He flees into the night, proud of his accomplishments. The real Spider-Man, however, is not having a good time of it. His relationship with Black Cats hit a wall when he discovers her bad luck powers were a gift off the kingpin. In addition, Liz Osborne, wife of Peter's best chum Harry, is in hospital suffering complications in her pregnancy after being caught in the crossfire in a battle between Spider-Man and the Hobgoblin. At the hospital, Harry Osborne waits for news on his wife's condition. The next morning, Spider-Kid is revealed to be Ollie Osnick, an old acquaintance of Spider-Man's. At school, he is saved from bullies by Jane Lane the prettiest girl in school. Ollie's nemesis, Brad, still throws Ollie around and Ollie tells him his friend Spider-Man will protect him. Brad laughs and Ollie gets away, but Jane dumps Brad for humiliating Ollie. How come all the idiots are always called Brad? He's called Brad in <laughs> Superman the movie and Superman 3 as well, isn't he? Yeah, it's just that kind of name. Is Brad, it? Brad or Chad. <laughs> <laughs> I hope no Brads or Chads listen to the show. <laughs> We're not talking about you. No, no, no. If your name's Brad or Chad, it's those other... <laughs> Brad and Chad's that we're talking about. Mary Jane swings on by the hospital where the situation is dire for Liz. She says she will stay for a while and Peter, in lieu of anything else to do, decides to locate the Hobgoblin, but his costume is still wet from the night before. Instead, he dons the black costume replica the black cat made for him. After a fruitless night, Spider-Man runs into Spider-Kid and Spidey tries to let the kid down gently, telling him he doesn't need a partner. Not one without powers, anyway. Ollie takes this as a rejection and flees. He is seen by Jane Lane and the muggers he stopped last night, and all players converge after Ollie. Jane finds Ollie, who is only slightly embarrassed by his attire, but the muggers, a gang called the Skulls, corner them in an alleyway. The Skulls advance, but then suddenly freeze in fear before Ollie. Galvanised, Ollie stands his ground, protecting Jane and believing the Skulls to be afraid of him, but he doesn't see Spidey behind him, menacingly clinging to the wall. The Skulls run. Ollie has his moment of heroic triumph, and Spider-Man webs the Skulls up out of earshot. Ollie vows to never be Spider-Kid again. The next day, Liz has delivered the baby by caesarean section, and both mother and baby are doing fine. Spider-Man drops by Ollie's school, impressing all of Ollie's classmates. After a few yucks all round, Spider-Man swings off into the sunrise. Oh, that's sweet. The issue is a direct sequel to the events of Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, issue 72, which was great. Was it? Yes. Love Peter Parker, issue 72. Um, I thought this was really packed in terms of uh, story and art. There are a number of pages that are traditional nine-panel grids, a number of six-panel grids, and even a mixture of the two. For some reason, this works with Spider-Man as it evokes the Ditko era. Friends is very good at making Peter look a slightly older version of Ditko's gawky teenager. Do you like the art? Yeah. I think Ron Friends is really underrated. Mm. I think he's a pretty good artist. I do like how Ollie has got 
a mask, uh, a loop on his mask, sorry, so his glasses don't fall off. Yeah. <laughs> that was really good. Because I was reading this at first going, why, why is his mask over, under his glasses? Why are they not coming off? And then I noticed that they'd actually thought about that. Yeah. So I, that was, I like his eye holes as well. That was really quite cool. What, that he doesn't actually have the Spider-Man... Um, yeah. Eye pieces. Like when you get the masks that have the white but still have an eye slit in. Yeah. I thought, was, I thought that was quite clever. Because I was going to pick on that. Those his glasses stayed <laughs> Like an alien nation where they had no ears but they wore glasses. How does that work though? Did they not have lumps with the ears though? They, they didn't have anything. Oh, okay. Well, they did. I mean, they did because the actors yeah. had ears. But they weren't supposed to have anything, I don't think. They were probably glued on. I liked Ollie's art in this issue which I actually thought was a, a subtle mediation on confidence whereas being Spider-Man ultimately helped Peter Parker come out of his shell a little Ollie is a buster spider kid but the experience helps him in the same way the Ollie we see at the end of the issue is not the Ollie of the beginning and definitely not the Ollie of the earlier story DeFalco completes his arc admirably and it's yet another example of comic book writers who should obey the Hippocratic Oath maxim first do no harm the later stories that feature Ollie don't negate this, but they do slightly undermine it, because to work they have to kind of ignore his character growth. Spidey's still chums with Black Cat. Are we calling it chums? Yeah. Given what they're up to? Well, they, they do outright say what they want to get up to. Well, we've seen what they get up to in Spectacular Spider-Man. Does he leave the mask on? Yes. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> because she doesn't want to know who he is. Although she, she knows he's Peter at this point, doesn't she? Does she? Yeah, I think he's revealed his identity to her at this point. And she's just not impressed. Fair enough. She won't Peter Parker. Is the thrill gone now? Yeah, and that's ultimately what leads him to split up. Yeah. Uh, okay. so, so, yeah, so Dan Slott didn't invent that. Right. Lovely listeners. <laughs> Bill Mantlow did. And uh, Jim Shooter led him. So, you know, fair enough. Peter's life is as complicated as ever in this issue. From the last issue we covered, Mary Jane's back. Spider-Man is in a relationship with Black Cat that doesn't seem based in trust. Hobgoblin is still an issue. And supporting players Harry Osborne and Liz Allen Osborne are major players. Stern brought all of these back in his run as well as introducing new characters to make Peter's life more complex but it's a far better examination of the life of an early 20-something than the frat boy sitcom approach currently employed by Dan Slott now, this is not me knocking Dan Slott or his stories we quite enjoyed Superior Mm Spider-Man a great deal, but this is a much more mature Peter Parker than the one that's currently been written yeah, you know what I think? This one feels like an early 20-something who's lived a life. The yeah. current version of Peter feels like an early 20-something who's just goofing off all the time. Mm. Well, it's, I wouldn't you know. know, I've only got the modern stuff to go off. Uh, well, you've read this. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you can formulate an opinion on it. But with these, I'm just jumping in and out. There is that. We're quantum leaping around. Yeah, yeah. In time. I just felt Peter was a lot more mature here than he is now. And given that he's supposed to be older now... <laughs> That seemed a bit weird. I just still felt he was Peter Parker. Oh, yeah, he's still Peter Parker. I don't think he's he's changed all that much to me. Like, oh, he's still Peter Parker, he gets in late, he's put his costume on to wash. Oh, but he forgot to put it out onto the dry in the I, morning. I quite liked that. I liked that uh, his costume's wet. Yeah. That was a very, um, Cause it's that a, was a, a very Peter Parker moment. Yeah, yeah. I quite liked it. Some nice touches in Peter's life as well. His bad eating habits. Yeah. Which I presume you can relate to. Which don't show in the art. Well, he's not fat. 
Yeah. But he's Peter Parker. He has a lot of exercise, dude. <laughs> and his metabolism probably works really quick. And you know what a fat Spider-Man, do it? That metabolism, that... You know, from somebody who doesn't eat. Yeah, well, he eats a lot of crap. But he says he doesn't eat at all as well. No. Maybe that's why he's skinny, then. Yeah. Uh, maybe he's just pure muscle. The black costume returning was reader demand. When it originally appeared in issue 252, fan outcry was decidedly against it. And Shooter ordered it dropped. DeFalco argued it had to stick around for at least as long as eight issues of Secret Wars and concocted a story to last that long. Of course, when people actually read the issues, they loved the costume, and having a cloth version was the compromise that was reached. What do we learn from this, kids? Well, wait and see how things pan out before leaping to conclusions. <laughs> you know, I'm glad we've learned that lesson in the internet era. Okay. Do you know that we have? I don't think we have. No, uh, okay, sure. Uh, for a while, Spider-Man would be the only comic book character that would have two distinct union suits, I believe they were called. Mm. which um, was a nightmare for licensors, I presume. <laughs> they want to sell Spider-Man in his red and blues and he's swinging around in this black and white thing. Can't imagine that that went down well. Ollie's life mimics Peter's complete with a Liz Allen, a Flash Thompson and an overly protected mother. Complete with the same lines of dialogue yeah, as well. Well, maybe not wheat cakes. Yeah. Maybe he doesn't ask about wheat cakes. When, when he walks out of the, the little playground... Yeah. Someday you'll be sorry. Sorry you laughed at me. Yeah. Which is exactly what Peter Parker says in uh, Amazing Fantasy 15, yeah. Ollie makes a spidey signal with a torch. Spider-Man thinks he's been reading too many comic books. Which I thought was odd, given that Spider-Man has a spider signal. Yeah. In his belt. Maybe which he, he does, uses later on. Which he, does he? Yeah, in the alley. Oh, he doesn't use it in the alley, he uses oh, yeah. it on the last page when he goes and sees Ollie in the high school. Yeah. So, yeah, he does use it later, though, so you're absolutely right. Bit too comic booky, though, eh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, DeFalco gets nowhere near the credit that he deserves as the construction of this storyline is fantastic. Page 16 brings everybody together in a well-orchestrated climax that culminates in a very satisfying conclusion. Yeah. I thought this built up really well. Yeah. And got to... Brought everyone into the right point. So it's like one of those chase movies like Cannonball Run. Everyone's brought to the the brink of the finish line so all the plots converge at the end. Yeah. Oh, it was really do- well done. A really well-constructed um, comic. I just thought there's a, there's a lot about Ollie and his... You know, his psychology that was left untouched, though. Why? Because it's Ollie's story. Yeah, and you can read quite a bit into it. Like, there must be some psychological damage yeah. in him for to do what he's doing in the first place. To pretend to be Spider-Kid. Well, there is, if you've read the earlier yeah. Parker issue. That's got an awful lot in about that. his conversation with Spider-Man where he says, Oh, you changed your costume, we can't be buddies now. Why did you change your costume? Mm. And Spider-Man not wanting to do this because... He's going to get hurt. He's going to get hurt for him to storm off crime because he he feels like he was rejected. Yeah. There's quite a bit there that you can read into that wasn't mentioned or brought up. No. But at the end of it, he's completely changed. Yeah. He's more confident. That's what I was saying. I wish that they'd left him alone. Yeah. After this. Other writers brought him back. And if they stay together and have kids, this would be a funny story to tell. Yeah. Jane Osnick. Yeah. It's better than Jane Lane. It is. That's, yeah. that's a that's a bad name, It's Harry. a bit too comic booky. It's a bit too comic booky, yeah. Uh, when this was published in the UK, 
the word caesarean was replaced by operation. Presumably British kids were far too delicate <laughs> to handle that level of complexity. Uh, again, a solid, if not amazing issue. Some good storytelling and momentum. Even more dense than the stern issue we covered last week. DeFalco manages to tell a one-issue story that is predicated on the events from the last few issues. Plus developments in Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man. And still manages to weave an entertaining issue around it. There's rather a lot of exposition required to bring the readers up to speed in case they don't read Peter Parker, if they've missed a few stories. And as such, I did feel it was a bit of a missed opportunity to milk some drama out of the spectre of the goblin once again, almost bringing tragedy to Harry Osborne's life. But DeFalco does a good job of weaving the subplots while still managing to highlight the similarities between Peter Parker and Ollie Osnick. Ollie would be brought back, played purely for laughs, with none of the pathos that DeFalco includes here. And it kind of negates his, his character growth. Like I said, I wish they'd left him alone. Yeah. I liked it, it was good. You I know, enjoyed it. I did. They did a good job with handling the comedy, mixing the comedy with the very quite tense moments mm. with Liz Allen and yeah. Harry Osborne. and the seriousness of what Liz is going through. It's a good issue, isn't it? Yeah. Good. A good, solid issue. It is. Again. This is what comics were like in the 80s. Not everything yeah. was event, event, event. It was just, it was all good stuff. Reading the adverts, though. Were there adverts in this one? Yeah. Let me go back then. Man, there was some uncomfortable adverts in this. Well, Cloak and Dagger are now in their own battle at bi-monthly comics. Because (laughs) you loved the limited series, the servants of darkness and light now lead you down exotic paths to adventure and excitement every 60 days. By Bill Mantlow, Rick Leonardi and Terry Austin. That was probably good. Yeah. Good creative team, that. Which which advert made you feel? Uh, you, you might know when you come across it. There's Marvel's lo- new line of Star Comics, which was comics for kids. So was Spider-Man not for kids then? Apparently not. Strawberry Shortcake, Cake, Sorry, Planet Terry, Wally the Wizard, Heathcliff, the Get Along Gang, the Ewoks, and Fraggle Rock. Yeah. All uh, Rocket Raccoons, four issue miniseries by Bill Mantlo and um, Mike Mignola. Alright, Power Pack and the Amazing Spider-Man on tips on ways to prevent sexual abuse. Yeah. Is that the issue that established that Peter Parker was touched in the wrong way as a kid? I don't know, but am I the only one who felt very uncomfortable that the Power Pack (laughs) were talking to me about sexual abuse? The Power Pack. Maybe they they thought... You know, they're not even ten. The kids would relate to kids. You know what got me about that advert? One, the art is clearly different between the Power Pack and Spider-Man. <laughs> but the other, Spider-Man is swinging on light speeds trail. That's, that's <laughs> not a solid thing. His web could not do that. <laughs> Am I missing the point of the adverts? I love the first thing you noticed was how the art was different. Yeah, I think the point of the ad, the seriousness of the advert is so right <laughs> over my head. As I've gone into fanboy nerd rage <laughs> over the fact that the art's wrong. <laughs> Do you know what? The only thing that annoys me more than that, not putting a hyphen in Spider-Man, yes, <laughs> okay. And also, whenever he spins his webs, yeah. and people show him either with a full fist clenched, right. or just doing that with his palm open, <laughs> that annoys me, you know. What, what about when he has his little finger, like, up... I don't mind that one. Okay. That's alright, because at least he's pressing the button yeah. when he's doing that. But yeah, yeah, maybe the point of the ad has gone over my head if I'm criticising <laughs> the ad one. Uh, Bullpen Bulletins is all plug in Secret Wars 2, isn't it? The most successful comic series in a quarter century is going to have a sequel! <laughs> yeah, Secret Wars 2 was an absolute high point in Jim Shooter's career <laughs> at Marvel. 
Well, they're doing another one, aren't they? Oh, God, let it go! Is it... Is Secret Wars one of the titles for bringing back? I've seen lots of adverts recently for Secret Wars and Infinity Gauntlet. Civil War. Yeah, oh, Jesus. Another Roman Logan. Please, God, no. Don't bring Civil War back. You know they're going to because it sold well. Yeah. So the fact that it was... Maybe somebody else will do a decent job of it. Maybe. I'm pretty looking forward to another Old Man Logan. Well, what's wrong with the old Old Man Logan? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) So... You know, they could turn it into Unforgiven. Because, yeah. Dying ain't much of a living, kid. Oh, that's Josie Wales, that, isn't it? Yeah. Hell of a thing, killing a man. Take away everything he ever was, everything he ever will be. That's Unforgiven, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, by 1985, the X-Men were truly becoming the franchise title it is today. In addition to the regular Uncanny X-Men and New Mutants, new monthly title X-Factor would be added to the roster, bringing the X-Men level pegging with Spider-Man in regards to monthly output and exceeding the wall crawler, if one counted Dazzler as a mutant comic. But we don't. <laughs> there would also be a mini-series featuring solo adventures or purrings of X-Men characters. A team up with Alpha Flight, plus additional minis like Kitty Pride and Wolverine, Beauty and the Beast, Iceman and Nightcrawler all saw print in 1985. And the number increases if one considers Longshot, Vision and Scarlet Witch, or Cloak and Dagger to be part of the Mutant Empire. Which we probably do, I don't know. They even appeared in Power Pack and helped close out Marvel Team Up. For the core title, John Romita Jr. went from strength to strength as artist, drawing this year's issues that were all leading to Chris Claremont's long-running subplot that exonerated Magneto, taking him from villain to hero. And this reached a major development with Uncanny X-Men 200, cover dated December 1985. Romita Jr. and Dan Green's cover has Magneto in chains and a really unfortunate purple unitard stood in the middle as the X-Men do battle in the background. It's pretty good. The trial of Magneto was handled by all the people we've mentioned. Clermont, Ramita Jr. and Green. You like the cover? Yeah. It's good, isn't it? This... I don't like what Magneto's worried. No, but it looks a lot better in black and white. Yes. Yeah, it still looks crap. Isn't it really gurishly purple? Yes. It's crap. It's a crap costume. (laughs) There's no other description for it. It's a dreadful look for him. Even, you know, at least the bucket head's iconic. Yeah. This is just... It does look like he's wearing a onesie and leather gimp gloves, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah. It's just not a good costume. The world's media is abuzz with the trial sensation of the century. Not since the Nuremberg trials have there been such an interest in what happens within the walls of a court of law. To some, this man tried with crimes against humanity as a hero. To others, the epitome of evil. For today, in Paris, France, five judges and no jury will sit in judgment of a man unlike any other. For today is the trial of Magneto. Prosecuting the case Sir James Jaspers, whilst the defence consists of Gabrielle Haller, aided by Charles Xavier as a foremost expert of genetic mutation. The situation in Paris is a powder keg, as pro- and anti-mutant protesters have taken to the steps of the Palais de Justice. Do you like that? Yes. In the Mediterranean, more problems as the mutant duo Fenris prepare to take their vengeance against Magneto, Keller and Xavier. They'll have to stand in line. Across the world, in Poland and in West Germany, a terrorist faction destroys army bases in the name of the X-Men, demanding Magneto be freed. The real X-Men, freshly arrived in Paris from Asgard, don't take too kindly to this, and it is decided the only way to prove their innocence is to catch the real culprits, even if the X-Men don't particularly like Magneto. 
As the trial begins, the X-Men pick out likely targets and split up to best track the terrorists. It's Colossus and Nightcrawler who hit pay dirt when a hospital is attacked and, duly informed, the rest of the X-Men swoop in. However, it is Colossus who manages to save the day, even if the world still believes the X-Men to be responsible. The X-Men then track the terrorists to a boat on the River Seine. However, preventing the terrorists will involve attacking what looks like a boatload of innocents, a no-win scenario. The fight goes well, however Wolverine figures that this is grunt work, a distraction. He's right. The real attack is happening at the courthouse as Fenris chooses this moment to kill Xavier, Magneto and Gabrielle. After a fight that nearly destroys the court, Xavier evacuates the people to the basement whilst Magneto attacks Fenris. He learns they are the children of Baron von Strucker, who all three caused problems back in the day. Magneto deduces they need to be in contact for their powers to work and separates them, even offering their lives to Charles. This round is over, but Fenris manages to blast a hole in the wall, rupturing it, and as they are below sea level, the River Seine comes pouring in. Magneto and Charles are swept away, but of course Magneto rescues them both. However, Charles suffers a heart attack, and as he lays dying, he asks Magneto to take over the school. Magneto sees they will never accept it, but if that is his wish, he will do his best. The Starjammers finally arrive with Lalandra, who says she can save Charles, but he will have to be taken away with them. Charles goes and Magneto promises, come what may, he will be true to his word. Uh, as usual for a clone on Xbox... Xbox? <laughs> Xbox. There are subplots aplenty. Cyclops is now married to Madeline Pryor and she's pregnant with his child. Whatever happened to that? I don't know. I don't. The Starjammers are attempting to locate Charles, who is suffering heart attack, something he hasn't mentioned to the X-Men, although Cyclops has figured it out. And Kitty is starting to show symptoms of short-sightedness. Whatever happened to that? I don't know. Meaning, but I quite liked it. I quite thought it was a nice touch. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was quite cool. However, it's the trial we are most interested in. The defence wins its first case, getting all of Magneto's crimes from before he was reborn as an infant stricken from the record. Something Jasper thinks is preposterous. I also thought that was preposterous. Yeah. He's still the same guy. <laughs> Just because he's been de-aged and now he's only about 33, he still did all that stuff. Yeah, but now he's a born-again Christian. I mean, he's a born-again mutant. He's a born-again mutant, yes. You know, I don't I don't know what I thought of that. Did you think that was acceptable, strick all that from the record? No, but I liked... That he got away with it. Maybe not that he got away with it, because yeah. th- he still made decisions that he shouldn't be forgiven for. Right. But I did like... His his new arc of seeking redemption. Yeah, well, I think Claremont's been building up to that for a while, and as we saw when we did X Men One, when we did the '90s stuff, he yeah. wanted to completely exonerate him and have him take over as leader of the X Men. Yeah, and he was overruled by Bob Harris, who wanted him back being a bad guy. Yeah, that yeah, that was when he lost it again. Yeah, that was it? when he lost it again. So that story must have run for some considerable time. Yeah, if this is 1985 and that was 1991. Yeah. So that's another six years, and he's been building to this for a while here. Mm. So he certainly kept his stories going for a long time. Yeah. You know. Even with all that uh, denseness in the single issue. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think Magneto argued quite eloquently in the face of prosecution from the Russians. He has no ties to the United States or Russia, yet he's constantly under attack from both. And his argument is that he merely defended himself against irrational human hatred. This hatred, Magneto states, is all over. Auschwitz could happen again. And to deny that would be folly. As long as man continues to slaughter because of skin colour, race, faith, politics, or on occasion for no reason at all. 
Magneto acknowledges that the old way he went about achieving equality for all mutant kind was self-destructive, and by standing trial he hopes to establish a new way. Jaspers isn't having any of it. Mm. He's, he thinks that this is poppycock. Magneto's always wanted world domination, has never shied away from killing to achieve that goal. He is quite eloquent, isn't he? He is. He's, he's remarkably got a tongue of silver. He's remarkably well spoken. Yeah, and smart. And he is right, both in a real world context and in the X Men context. Yeah, when it you know Auschwitz did happen again in Days of Future Past. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah, within the continuity of the X-Men, he's yeah. right. Yeah, and you know, I hadn't considered that, but essentially, yeah, they were rounded up and put in internment camps, weren't they? Yeah. So, yeah, he was absolutely right. It, Clermont's writing of Magneto's speeches is brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic stuff, I thought. I did like Jasper's line that you want subjugation, not harmony. Mm. So he, he's on, um, he's got an uphill battle to fight. Yeah. to prove that uh, he does want to repent. Clermont brings everybody picking this issue up to speed with a really rather effective opening, essentially telling Magneto's history via a news broadcast, as Frank Miller would do a year later in The Dark Knight Returns. I'm not saying Miller ripped off Clermont. I'm not even saying it was original here. But I am saying excellent comic book storytelling predates many of the people who get all of the credit. Hmm. And I think Clermont has become one of those people who's quite underrated, given the amount of time he stayed on the X-Men. Another thing Clermont's often mocked for is dialogue, normally by snobby comics readers who should know better. I thought it was fantastic in this issue. Yeah. I thought the dialogue was brilliant. I thought every caption pop, every caption box sorry, was a gem. Every line forwarded the story. And some of it was incredibly eloquent. Like we've said, Magneto gets some great speeches. And whilst I can't agree with a lot of his defence, yeah. you do have to admire Clermont's skill as a writer that as you read this issue, you find yourself, if not siding with Magneto, at least understanding his viewpoint. Yeah. I thought it was really well done. Well, Absolutely brilliant. I'm not really a big fan of Clermont's uh, narration and speeching. Speeches. Speechifying. Yeah, yeah, but... Yeah. Because uh, I, I do think he's a bit too stiff sometimes, but this was really good in an issue that was double-sized and entirely made up of dialogue. Mm. Well, there was some action beats. There were some pretty good action scenes in it. Mm. But for the most part, the, the the central spine of the issue was the, the court case. And, like, for once in a comic book issue, you're not reading it for the fight scenes. No. There were times where I was like, oh, we've got to put up with a fight scene. Yeah. I want to get back in the courtroom. <laughs> Because um, that's how gripping it was. Uh, I Jim... want to get back to Atticus Finch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not that the fight scenes weren't brilliant. I love Colossus just piling into the tank yeah. and smashing it to bits. That was all cool stuff. But yeah, that you did get to a point where, come on, get back in the car. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's lots of little nice touches because it's a Clermont boot, like. Um, Cyclops sees the graffiti on the wall of the building free Magneto the X-Men and then blasts it to bits when he realises that we're going to get blamed for this doesn't matter what we've done doesn't matter that we've saved lives we're still going to get blamed for it yeah so it doesn't make any difference so it's proper X-Men isn't it it's mm. proper X-Men storytelling Jim Jaspers was part of Alan Moore's Captain Britain run okay you ever read that no it's really good it's really good Alan Moore 
Alan Moore's Captain Britain, anyway. In between issues 199 and this issue, the X-Men and the New Mutants would have a crossover adventure taking place in New Mutants Special Number 1 and X-Men Annual Number 9. This necessitated a reading order be published in bullpen bulletins at the time. The first time, and I can recall that ever happening, yeah. that they had to publish a reading order for the, the stories, because I don't think they came out in the right order. Yeah. So they had to basically say, yeah, in between issue 199 and 200, this other story's happened. Right, okay. That you have to go and buy. I mean, in this essential, they're published in the right order. Yeah. Aren't they? So. Don't you usually have editor's notes to say that kind of thing in issues? Yeah, but they put it in the bullpen bulletins this time as well. Right, okay. Because so the bullpen bulletins was published in every comic. Yeah. So basically, if you were reading New Mutants but not X Men, they were basically saying, oh, I think you should pick up X Men. There's a higher chance you see that. Yeah. And uh, I think you should buy the annuals <laughs> and all of that stuff. Which just was. Worked. Cyclops being the voice of reason with Charles over Magneto was also very well written. I find it hard to risk my life for a man who's tried to kill me more than once. Was a really nice line in an issue full of nice lines. Yeah. Oh, this was exceptionally good. The bored X-Men just hanging around waiting for something to happen. There are no page numbers in the essential, so I don't know what page it was. It was beautiful. Marvellous characterisation in but a few lines of dialogue and Ramita and Green's magnificent body language. Rogues like bored. Mm. And Storm's just take it easy. Uh, my favourite was Wolverine and Kitty. Yeah. We've been waiting for hours, Wolverine. Yep. Suppose nothing happens. Then we try again tomorrow night. I thought it was great. Yeah. I love Wolverine and Kitty. They made such I, a good yeah. team, didn't they? I like um, when Josh Whedon did it as well, and there was the new girl who had the side armour. Oh, yeah. And Wolverine got on with her as well. Did Kitty feel a bit out of place? Could have be. I don't remember. That, that's still one of my favourite uh, Wolverine lines of dialogue. Yeah, on well with kids. Yeah. Can, can I help you? Are you a beer? No. <laughs> no, then. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. That is funny. That is very good. Um, well, we've already mentioned that the action set pieces are pretty impressive. Even if we wanted to just get back into the courtroom. But even after everything you can see on the cinema now, these were still pretty damn cool. Yeah. I thought. I think they were, and John Romita Jr.'s art is brilliant in this issue. It's really different it's from anything else. It's fantastic, yeah. isn't it? It's really, really good. Uh, one thing Clermont does wonderfully is not always portray the X-Men as paragons of virtue. You've got Kitty here actually wishing ill on the protesters before it's pointed out that they are pro-mutant. Yeah. And she's like, oh yeah, I can't actually read the signs because she's getting short-sighted. Which leads to another great line, I'm an X-Men, I can't need glasses. Yeah. Which was brilliant. I don't know what happened with that subplot because I don't recall Kitty ever wearing glasses. No. But I've not read enough X-Men post this to know. I do like Kitty though. She was kind of what brought the X-Men closer to home than any other character. Mm, she's lovely Kitty Pratt. She's a really interesting character. Again, I don't know what she's like now, because I've not read X-Men in years. She's still on that floaty bullet, isn't she? she? As far as we're concerned, yeah. My only complaint about this issue is Jim Jaspers is portrayed as a cartoon. Yeah. In order to make Magneto more sympathetic. I thought that was a bit disappointing. Yeah. There was no shades of grey to him. He was just He was almost a cartoony bad guy. Yeah. And I don't think he should have been. I think it would have made the story more effective if he was rational mm. rather than a bit silly. Yeah. Because he, he just goes off on one every now and again, doesn't he? Mm. And it feels a bit histrionic and over the top. But, you know. 
the line even if we win we lose maybe a dig slash nod to Jim Shooter apparently Shooter had a number of edicts after Secret Wars sold so well this is how you write a good comic yeah apparently and that line was allegedly something Shooter insisted be part of every single Marvel story okay. it's ro- is that Rogue? no, no it's um, Rachel yeah isn't it Rachel says that we get a fastball special Yay. Yay. Do you ever get bored of them? No. No. Like Hulk outs and shirt rips. Yeah, yeah. Never get bored of a fastball special. I like the last three panels on that page where Colossus smashes through the Notre Dame. Yeah, smashes through the window and lands with a thud. And it's all black and it's just the glass and Colossus. It's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. I can't decide if that's very Miller. Lots of negative space. Yeah. Is that what that is? Yeah. Right. It's good, though. John Jr. does a knocks it out of the park in this issue. I really do. I also like at the end, it's Wolverine that figures out that this is a distraction because he's quite the tactician and quite smart on the yeah. sly. He just doesn't like people knowing it. I thought that was his, his big thing about him. No, he, he never lets people know how smart he is, does he? Because then the the underestimate. Yeah, him. which is what he wants. He wants yeah. you to underestimate him because you don't think he's as smart he is, and because he's tiny. Then that's a good tactician as well. Yeah, when he's only five foot five, <laughs> not played by Hugh Jackman, who's six foot four. But we'll let that go. <laughs> I thought it was a nice touch that Wolverine was the one that figured that out. I thought that was uh, really good. An excellent issue. Character-led but action-packed, filled with ambiguity and tension, small moments and large set pieces, this 200th issue of Uncanny X-Men is Chris Claremont at the top of his game, juggling subplots and main plots with such a plomb the reader can't tell which is which. By this point, the X-Men had tippled over the edge from cult favourite and critical smash to bona fide hit. Claremont was using the broad canvas he was painting on to weave intricate tales that regularly shatters readers' expectations, making X-Men an unpredictable comic with no set formula. The art by John Romita Jr. and Dan Green is some of the best Romita Jr. has ever done. Marvel flew the X team over to Paris for this issue and it shows. Every panel is gloriously detailed and almost fine art. I task even Romita's most ardent detractors to look at this issue and not revel in it. It's magnificently effective in black and white as well. A joy to read and it makes one realise that as good as some of the movies are, they have yet to make an X-Men movie as good as this single issue of the comic. It makes me want to go back to the start of the Paul Smith run and read all of Clermont's stuff up to Follow the Mutants and Mark Silvestri showing up. Yeah. Because it's just absolutely fantastic. Really enjoyed it. I really liked it. I just got a bit out of it. Why? When the Star Jammers showed up. Well, the Star... I personally couldn't give... Do you think you couldn't give a toss about them because we've not... We're dipping in and out of them. That and the... They have a completely different tone to the rest of the story. They're only there yeah. so that Xavier doesn't die. Well, I I didn't want Xavier to die, but I felt that them showing up kind of took away a lot of impact from that last scene. Yeah, well, like, you knew they're not going to go through yeah. with killing him. Like, that scene was really touching and it showed the great friendship that Professor X and Magneto have as enemies and friends and arguably brothers mm. and it was such a great and touching scene for the Star Jams to just show up and ruin and undermined it by saying yeah, yeah if we take him back to the ship we can save him yeah 
So basically what you're saying, it's it could have been Wrath of Khan, <laughs> and instead it was Into Darkness. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Yeah. All right, that's fair enough. Some excellent issues this time around. The mid-1980s are a period of great growth and maturity in comics, and these are all pretty decent examples to varying degrees. Only X-Men 200 is an out-and-out classic of the superhero genre this time, but that's largely because Clermont was light years ahead of everybody else in terms of his output and skill. No disappointments this week, though. No Mm. no out-and-out clunkers. No. Really. Superman issue was the weakest of the bunch by far. Once again. But it wasn't awful. So even when you say anyone, even the weakest one's still eminently readable. Yeah. That's not bad. You know, you're reading Shadow of the Bat. Yeah, pretty much. Sure, Shadow of the Bat was great. Yeah, but when it wasn't as great, it was still good. Yeah. It's not like you stuck with a web of Spider-Man. Which wasn't good at all, for the most part. Next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, 1987. And Adventures of Superman issue 424, Detective Comics issue 573, Amazing Spider-Man 290, and Uncanny X-Men issue 225. I have no cute 80s going out with thing at the moment. We've said get out of town and grow to the max and... Have we said gag me with a spoon? No, we'll go out with that one. (laughs) Gag me with a spoon, brother. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye.
Kids comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. And we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Hey,